Hello everyone and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series on women and leadership. I'm Ilana Beitel, I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are helping to advance our organization's goals of empowering women in fields of peace, security, defense, and leadership. We're happy to be back after a long summer break, especially with a great new episode, which we're recording on the 5th of September, and it's dedicated to all matters nuclear. Amongst the many crises afflicting the globe currently, food and energy to name just two, the nuclear threat revived by Russia in its war against Ukraine may be the most dangerous, yet also the most misunderstood. We hear much about the nuclear threat, recall images of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but in truth, most of us have remarkably little idea of what it actually means. To understand these issues better, we as ever have with us two excellent expert women, Jessica Cox, Director for Nuclear Policy at NATO, and Paulina Sinovitz, Director of the Odessa Center for Non-Proliferation. Welcome, ladies. Good morning. Thank you. As ever, I would like to start with um, you introducing yourselves and your careers and how you reached where you've reached. Jessica. Well, thank you so much again for having me here. Um, I'm a a longtime member of Weiss in Washington, D.C., so it's a a pleasure to to interact with you here in Brussels. As you said, uh, I am the Director for Nuclear Policy uh, at NATO, a position I've held for the past four years. Um, But I'm actually also uh, a member of the U.S. government. I come out of the Department of Defense, uh, where I've worked for almost 15 years now, uh, maybe even longer. Uh, It's hard to keep track sometimes. Um, And I I, uh, have had a variety of positions uh, at the Pentagon, um, including the director for Russia policy, Um, including working on conventional arms control issues. Uh, I also got my start in doing countering weapons of mass destruction policy. So thinking about countering nuclear terrorism and how to do kind of uh, work on that side of the problem set, uh, as well as stints on the country desks for Iran and for Pakistan. So I've had a a quite a wide ranging uh, set of issues uh, at the Pentagon. Um, And before uh, coming to NATO, I was also uh, on the National Security Council, um, working uh, as the director for arms control, covering basically anything that was related to an international treaty. So nuclear arms control, conventional arms control, things like weapons conventions, like the landmine treaties and the cluster munitions treaties. Um, So uh, I've had quite a a breadth um, of experiences um, that are not uh, just focused on the on the nuclear policy dimension. And I should say, uh, before joining um, the U.S. government, uh, I actually was in law school. So I went to law school, trained as a lawyer, uh, thought that I would I would go into a legal profession. Um, and then uh, through a series of, I think, good uh, interventions, I ended up going into government and into policy instead. So, um, so yeah, so I've had kind of a, a really varied and broad uh, set of of career goals and objectives and and things that I've that I've been able to do um and like I said I've now been here at NATO for uh 4 years almost exactly and um my contract here at NATO has one more year uh and then I'll return back um into the US government and into our systems well that's an extremely um impressive career and undoubtedly your law school background is what enabled you to deal with all these many many treaties that you've dealt with. 
um, because, as you yourself said, it's uh, treaties of both conventional and unconventional are entirely governed by various laws. So if you're not a lawyer, I suspect it's much more difficult to understand. However, Paulina, I know that you're not a lawyer. Nonetheless, you understand them very, very well. Can you tell us a bit about your background, please? Oh, thank you. It's not that impressive at all. I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> first of all. Graduated from uh, the IR department, where I then kept on working. For 12 years, I was working also at the National Institute of Strategic Studies of Ukraine, but uh, also was teaching at the university as an associate professor. For some time, we were cooperating and well, still cooperating with the Swedish Aviation Safety Authority, which gave us the opportunity to conduct, start conducting uh, the range of um, uh, training programs and uh, summer schools and winter schools as well for young experts, students all over Ukraine and uh, Europe now, and also the US in arms control and non-proliferation. We still do it now, up to now. Uh, I think it's already been 15 years of uh, conducting the summer schools. I defended my PhD on uh, US and Russia nuclear deterrence uh, policies after the Cold War. Yeah, now um, I'm um, for some time uh, based in Malta. Also, I had fellowship opportunities in Naval Defense College uh, in 2015. And also, I had a Fulbright Fellowship in uh, James Martin Center for Non-Proliferation Studies in Washington, D.C., in back in 2017, uh, 18. My major field, which I always was looking at, was uh, Russia and its nuclear policy. And uh, in the past, it was also Iran. Thank you, Paulina. Let me take you back to something that you mentioned, is that you are the head of the Odessa Non-Proliferation Center, but nonetheless, you're in Malta. Why is that? Because of the war. <laughs> Obviously, it happens because of the war, because not even because, uh, you know, it was frightening to live in Odessa because of the war, just but just because uh, the center could not uh, keep on uh, that kind of activities we used to do. There are a lot of programs we do gathering students and experts, and uh, it was not really possible to do it, in, of course, in the conditions of war. We would be happy to organize conferences and events in Odessa, but I'm uh, deeply afraid that anyone except Odessa students would come. That is why we had to move to Malta for some period of time, just to be free to conduct events here in Europe. Of course, it's deeply traumatic experience on one hand because we had to leave a you know, beautiful premises of Odessa National University where we are based in and we have everything. But at the same time, I'm also now affiliated as a professor to the University of Malta. Thank you for that explanation, Paulina. Jessica, what is a nuclear policy? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Um, so at NATO, um, we, my team focuses on uh, nuclear deterrence policy in particular. I have another colleague, Wyndon Smith, who has uh, the arms control and nonproliferation uh, side of things. Um, so within my purview, we really focus on, um, as I said, nuclear deterrence and those things that the alliance uh, needs to do in order to make sure that our, uh, our capabilities remain uh, credible and effective. And this is, of course, has taken on even more importance, uh, as uh, Polina was mentioning, in the current security environment um, with, the, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and their um, nuclear threats associated with uh, their invasion. But, um, but when we think about NATO's nuclear policy, 
and what is a nuclear policy, we generally think about and talk about uh, the types of political uh, constraints and political enablements for uh, for our nuclear deterrence. So we just actually issued um, a new NATO strategic concept at our um, leaders meeting in Madrid this summer, which reaffirmed the fact that nuclear deterrence would provide uh, uh, kind of the core security of the alliance and that we would remain a nuclear alliance as long as nuclear weapons exist, even as our ultimate goal is a world without nuclear weapons. Um, and it also reaffirmed the fact that uh, our nuclear deterrence is really designed to um, prevent aggression, to you know, deter other uh, acts of um, malign acts, uh, and to preserve peace uh, pre predominantly in Europe. So, so these are the types of policies uh, that we um, that we talk about when we think about NATO's nuclear deterrence policy. Um, of course, NATO is made of three countries that actually possess nuclear weapons the United States, the United Kingdom, and France. And each of those countries has their own individual national policies. Um, most recently, the United States has completed its um, new nuclear policy review uh, that's not out yet, uh, but we're hoping it will come out soon publicly. Um, but they've, um, did, they've done some public briefings and, and some things here with allies. Uh, to express their their policies as well. So, and the UK uh, also had an integrated review in 2021, uh, and then President Macron of France had a, a big nuclear policy speech in 2020. So, all of these types of um, this type of thinking uh, really governs, you know, the types of activities we do, how we think about our nuclear deterrence from a capability perspective, um, but also the the types of situations that we think we might have to um, engage in kind of nuclear deterrence activities, um, both in peacetime uh, and crisis, and then uh, hopefully not, but if it comes to it in an actual conflict. Basically, though, probably to clarify for our audience, what you're referring to as nuclear deterrence is a nuclear policy. It's about, I've got this amount of um, nuclear capability, the other side has got Y amount of nuclear capability, how do I ensure that they don't use theirs before I use mine? So certainly looking at capabilities of your adversaries and your own and making sure that you have sufficient capability and capability that would be credible. Um, we don't have either a, a first use or a no first use policy at NATO. So it'd be very situationally dependent on uh, when we could potentially use nuclear weapons, um, I would say it's it's less about um, preventing them from using it before you can, and saying I have enough capability that if they were to use nuclear weapons against us, then we would be able to respond if we if we chose to with a nuclear capability with a nuclear response. Does that clarify? I think it probably is, but for people who aren't in the world, it may not be necessarily clarified. Let's look at it from the other point of view, Paulina. What is a non-proliferation treaty or non-proliferation policy as opposed to a nuclear policy? Well, I don't think there are really many discrepancies between nuclear policy and non-proliferation policy, because uh, actually non-proliferation treaty combines two marginal things and two things which look 
today sometimes look like impossible to combine. It combines the opportunity to retain nuclear policy, the opportunity to retain nuclear deterrence policies with the pledge for um, gradual um, nuclear disarmament in the uh, goodwill spirit as I understand. So the main problem of this situation now is that non-nuclear states who are you know, pledged to be non-nuclear according to the treaty, because um, the, actually the non-proliferation treaty is a treaty which combines two groups of states. One uh, group of states are nuclear states, the P5 official nuclear states, and uh, the other group of states who pledge to be non-nuclear members of the treaty. So now there is a tendency when non-nuclear members of the treaty says that the Article 6 of the treaty, which prescribes uh, nuclear disarmament, is not really working because nobody is going to disarm, which is not uh, true uh, because since the Cold War, the number of nuclear warheads substantially reduced. However, of course, none of the P5 states are, not, are going to disarm. So non-nuclear states say that, non- that non-proliferation treaty is not really uh, providing the good opportunity for the disarmament processes. That is why they uh, have created their own treaty, which is a treaty on the prohibition of uh, nuclear weapons, which actually forbids the policy of nuclear deterrence, unlike the NPT. Now the situation is pretty much, especially because of the recent uh, events, the situation is uh, or can be pretty much critical because um, the TPNW supporters, they became stronger because, of course, we all know that Russia is uh, using a nuclear card and the card of nuclear deterrence, which provides actually Russia mostly the power projection opportunities. And therefore, uh, that also became the argument in the eyes of uh, the TPNW supporters who say that, look, nuclear weapons are not damaging only from the standpoint of uh, using them, theoretically using them, but also from the standpoint of power projection, because nobody can interfere in the war between Russia and Ukraine. And uh, nobody can actually protect Ukraine with arms and hands. Otherwise, they will be punished by Russia. So actually, nuclear weapons are becoming the political instrument of being unpunished uh, because of whatever you are doing with your neighbors. If I if I could kind of add on to that, I think, you know, often there are discussions from within the, the community that there's either deterrence or there's non-proliferation, right? So either there's you know, pro-deterrence policies about nuclear weapons and nuclear use, or there's non-proliferation policies about ridding the world of nuclear weapons and getting rid of rid of these. But I think um, these are really, you know, not incompatible policies. You can still want to work towards reducing the number of weapons through treaties, through material security, through ensuring that the you know new countries don't obtain nuclear capabilities um while you also say you know until we're at a point where our adversaries or all countries are uh have eliminated their nuclear arsenals in a negotiated settlement with verification um we must retain some nuclear deterrence capability in order to protect our people and to um lessen the ability of of people like you know Vladimir Putin from threatening us with nuclear uh, weapons use. So, so I think uh, you know these are not incompatible policies, and they're not opposite policies. They they actually can be 
mutually reinforcing because ultimately, I think what the goal that we all share is that we don't want to see nuclear weapons ever used. Um, and so whether we um, prevent nuclear use from a deterrence lens where we're trying to prevent our adversaries from gaining an advantage by using nuclear weapons, or we're looking at how to reduce the number uh, and types of nuclear weapons that that nations have and the number of countries with nuclear weapons in the world, these policies are actually can be mutually reinforcing, not not um, standing against each other. And I think that's we tend to kind of get siloed in various communities, um, but the, they're within the nuclear world, um, but they're not they're not at all incompatible. Uh, well, I uh, absolutely agree with you. Non-proliferation uh, and deterrence are very much complying each other because uh, you know proliferation provides certain order for these states. They're not incompatible because uh, reductions doesn't mean disarmament. I would say that uh, uh, disarmament, uh, I mean, total and complete disarmament forbidding nuclear, nuclear deterrence is the one with non-compatible with deterrence. So NPT, non-proliferation treaty, is very much uh, about deterrence, but treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons is something which is contradicting because it forbids deterrence as the policy at all. As ever. You two are much better at it than I am. But let me ask something that, again, I suspect most of our listeners um, would like to know because nobody um, necessarily follows these things to the same degree. How many nuclear weapons are we actually talking about, both in terms of, just for the sake of argument, NATO and Russia? Let's leave China and other countries out of it at this point in time. Yeah, so I, I probably can answer that. Um, so the the specific numbers that either that any country has are are classified, but we know from unclassified sources and reporting that are fairly accurate. Um, the number of weapons that Russia has is over around um, six thousand five hundred in that ballpark. Their arsenal um, is composed of what we call strategic nuclear weapons. So that's, you know, giant intercontinental range missiles, that's submarine launched missiles and um, long uh, bombers that can reach, you know, intercontinental ranges. So they have um, under under treaty provisions, they can deploy um, up to uh, 1,550 of these strategic nuclear weapons. And then below that strategic threshold, um, they have approximately 2,000 uh, what we call non-strategic or sometimes can be called tactical nuclear weapons. These definitions are pretty um, meaningless for, for all intents and purposes. But these are the types of um, nuclear warheads that would go on uh, a missile that would be a shorter range missile, whether a ground launched cruise missile like we're seeing them use in Ukraine or an air launched cruise missile um, that has a much shorter range and reach than those intercontinental range systems that are treaty limited their non-strategic arsenal is not treaty limited. So that's kind of a, an important distinction. Um, from NATO, uh, as I mentioned before, we have three nuclear weapons possessor states within NATO, and they, they um, are the only ones that have physically have control over nuclear weapons. Um, France and the United Kingdom each have arsenals that are between around 200 to 300 nuclear weapons. So again, these are these are uh, much smaller arsenals than Russia. 
Um, the UK has a single um, platform deterrent. So all they have are submarine-launched missiles, strategic missiles. The French have submarine-launched strategic missiles, and then they also have air-launched missiles. So they have two platforms that they um, that they have the comprise their arsenal. And then, of course, the United States. Um, and the United States has uh, around, I think, um, the latest I saw was uh, unclassified was around 5,500 weapons. The majority of those are in their strategic arsenal. Again, that what we call like the nuclear triad is another a way of um, term to put it. Uh, and again, under treaty limitations, they're only allowed to deploy 1,550 strategic nuclear weapons on their triad. So the that um, New START treaty limits both the United States and Russia to those levels. And then the United States also has a number of what we call uh, the uh, weapons at the, what we call the tactical level, which are deployed in Europe uh, for uh, deterrence for NATO. And these are air-launched uh, gravity bombs. And there's around uh, 150-ish uh, here in here in Europe that are U.S. nuclear weapons that they have uh, deployed here in the European theater. So those are also, again, um, not covered by the New START treaty, unlike the U.S. strategic nuclear arsenal. But that number is much smaller than the number that Russia has of those non-treaty limited systems. So that's a lot of numbers and a lot of of complicated uh, layout. But I think the important point um, is that overall, the numbers, if you just look at numbers, it's about even between Russia and NATO. But if you look at the different types of systems that the U- that the US and Russia and other allies have, there is um, a much bigger focus in the Russian arsenal on these non-strategic systems um, that are really designed to hit targets in Europe that are potentially um have a lower, what we say, a lower threshold for use, meaning they could, they are more likely to use these weapons because they're not the type that would, you know, end the world as we, as we say, think about it from a Cold War perspective. Um, and these, this is a, a lot of what we're very concerned about um, from a NATO perspective is, is the type of weapons that we could, could potentially be used in much more of a war fighting scenario. So, and our systems that we we just don't have um, as as an alliance. So um, so that's kind of what we're looking at. Thank you. That is a lot of numbers, and it is a lot of um, explanations. But those are excellent. <clears throat> is it fair to say that also the difference between tactical and strategic nuclear weapons are basically distance and the means of delivery, as opposed to the severity of the the bomb or um, whatever is being delivered. Um, to put it more brutally, a tactical nuclear weapon only kills 5,000. A strategic one kills 50,000. I mean, you know, sort of for your average non-nuclear, non-military person, I'm not entirely sure you'd consider 5,000 tactical. 
Yeah. So, I mean, this is why I say kind of this distinction is a, is a, is a little bit uh, meaningless, but it's, it is. So some of it, some of that distinction is, as you put it, kind of the range are these systems that go long distances or shorter distances, but there is also, there is also a kind of yield um, as we would say in the nuclear world dis- distinction. So are these, you know, nuclear weapons that would destroy cities or city blocks. And, and that is that is a a distinction between um, what we would say a strategic weapon is versus a, a tactical nuclear weapon. Obviously, we don't want to ever see a nuclear weapon used in any context in any scenario because these are extremely um, dangerous weapons in addition to just the actual loss of life uh, associated with with the weapon itself. Of course, there are um, concerns about second order effects from things like radiation and and things like that. And the bigger the nuclear explosion is, the higher the the chance are that there's additional issues with the weapons. But um, but there are, I mean, there are, you know, small low yield nuclear weapons, um, certainly uh, in the Russian arsenal, but not only the Russian arsenal, uh, which may not even kill 5,000 people, may may be used um, very, very kind of narrowly um, to demonstrate resolve or to intimidate or to coerce um, us in NATO in general is how we think about it from further action and further engagement. So so it's not just kind of a, a war fighting weapon. It's also a political weapon. These are political tools of intimidation, of coercion, not just uh, tools that you would use to accomplish a military objective in a in a conflict. So that's why it is so complicated when we start thinking about nuclear deterrence and, and how nuclear weapons um, may or may not be used. And of course, there's a real risk as well, what we call the risk of escalation. So if a country were to use a a nuclear weapon or a few limited nuclear weapons use, that brings a huge risk of escalating then into this larger, um, you know, strategic warfight that is the type of scenarios that we thought about um, in the Cold War. Indeed. Polina... Um, do you have anything to add to 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 these descriptions? So um, I just wanted to say that it's all relative um, as for I mean the division for tactical and strategic. It was uh, always been uh, considered strategic, the one which can cover the distance between Russia and the United States or Soviet Union and the United States. So more than five thousand kilometers, and of course it has always been operated with the help of the heavy missiles, uh, with the megaton, with the multiple megaton uh, bombs. On the other hand, uh, if we look at the Cold War policies uh, of uh, the Soviet Union and NATO and their war planning things, then we'll see that during if, uh, if the war started, it was considered, for example, during the first couple of hours, Soviet Union planned to use more than 460 nuclear bombs against just Germany. So for Germany, those tactical weapons uh, turn to be very strategic ones because the strategic weapon, the one is 
is the one which changed uh, the uh, not the actual course yeah the actual course of war and uh, leads to some strategic successes so for germany these weapons and for whole europe the, those uh, non strategic nuclear weapons of soviet union had pretty strategic meaning this is why it's very relative that kind of division between tactical and strategic it depends on whom we are talking about and this is why the treaty the inf treaty treaty on intermediate nuclear forces which um, actually was um, buried uh, in 2019, it had that kind of meaning for Europe uh, because Europe was speaking about the existential threat from the side of Russia. Is it facing an existential threat now, do you think? Well, it depends if you believe in the power of nuclear deterrence. I don't uh, buy the argument that Russia is going to wage real war with Europe. I think that for Russia, the main issue with nuclear weapons is that it provides deterrence, and deterrence provides the opportunities to prevent Europe uh, and the United States from the involvement with Russian war against Ukraine. So if Russia uses, let us imagine, if Russia uses any nuclear weapons uh, you know, in Europe, of course it would have much more back, and uh, I don't think that it is uh, included Uh, that Russia plans uh, include any kind of destruction of the Russian territory, because any use of nuclear weapons against NATO would have a very painful effect for Russia. It would mean uh, the possible start of nuclear war. And the question is whether anyone is able to control a nuclear war. So I think that um, the main idea of Russia is to keep on threatening with the possibility of nuclear war, especially in Europe. Because I think it was in 2019, the RAND report told that if there will be any nuclear conflict uh, in the European part, um, like uh, Russia and in the region of Baltic states and Poland, they say that uh, Russia has the escalation dominance there. It means that it knows the targets, that it has certain policies, it has a lot of weapons. So um, NATO looks like not very, it looks like in the interior position when it comes to the regional uh, nuclear war. But the main issue is that nuclear war may not, uh, you know, remain, retain uh, in the uh, uh, framework of uh, being regional. It will go to the, on the strategic level. And in this regard, the United States would inevitably interfere and Russia knows that the United States would interfere. And in this regard, it may, of course, uh, be, you know, the last war for Russia and maybe the last war for the world, because a nuclear war, the world nuclear war is something which may wipe off not all, maybe if not all human beings, but pretty much of them, the majority, and lead to some kind of nuclear winter effects when other minority who survive will die in the coming years. But this is not the issue for Russia. I think that Russia's main idea The main platform which Russia is standing up from is the fact that in that uh, mutual confrontation between Russia and Russia, Russia is not that afraid of nuclear war than NATO is. So there is one chance for starting nuclear conflict, which I see in the current circumstances, which is not uh, because of Russia wanting a nuclear war, but in the situation if Ukraine will be, you know, will not stand if Russia will go further, and if Russia will feel that no matter what it would, what's going to do with the Baltic states, the United States would not react. At some point, Russia would be emboldened with, by this feeling, which probably illusionary feeling. And then Russia would start certain conventional actions against Baltic states, hoping to restore former Soviet Union, 
you know, Putin envisions it. So it may, uh, of course, lead to some kind of escalation to the nuclear level. Uh, however, I think that we are still not there. Ukraine still resisting. Russia is still trying to, you know, settle down on something with its conventional forces. And um, in this regard, nuclear policy is mostly a deterrence policy who, who is aiming to coerce NATO and uh, mostly such members of the United States from actively involving in that uh, conflict, from actively involving in the war, just uh, defending Ukraine with uh, arms and hands, sending troops, or like this, something like this. An interesting scenario. Um, let me ask you... Small question. Do you think, um, for our listeners who are not aware of it, at the end of the Cold War, Ukraine was itself a nuclear armed state? Of course, in 1986, there was the Chernobyl disaster in um, Ukraine. Do you think, in retrospect, Ukraine was wrong to disarm? So there is a tricky answer, of course, because on one hand, I would say yes and no. On one hand, uh, Ukraine was uh, the third nuclear state uh, for, as for the amount of nuclear weapons based on its ground. But on the other hand, um, all the command and control opportunities remained in the hands of Russia and Moscow. Therefore, Ukraine could not use its weapons against whoever, except of the tactical nuclear weapons, which were pretty much there, about 3,000, I think. They could be used theoretically against whoever because they could be used uh, by any field commander. That is why Russia was so fast to help Ukraine to dismantle it. Uh, I would say by summer of 1992, uh, all uh, tactical nuclear warheads were taken away from Ukraine, uh, not only by the forces uh, of, you know, and by the will of Ukrainian population, but also by a lot of uh, agents which were working for Russia in Ukrainian army, like higher officers. So that uh, weapons were actually, could be used by Ukraine against whoever, and first of all against Russia. So Russia was clearly aware of this fact. That is why they did it in such a fast way. Uh, regarding strategic weapons, which were based in Ukraine, the only thing Ukraine could do probably is not to obey the, answer, the uh, commands, the orders coming from Russia, not to put uh, the button for the launch. Uh, I mean, to prevent the launch of uh, these weapons from the field of from the ground of Ukraine. However, Ukraine could never take um, control over that weapons uh, in the way to make it operational in Ukrainian hands. This is why Ukraine, yes, Ukraine. Uh, pass through the process of nuclear disarmament because uh, to substantial, um, I would say to the most degree, Ukraine just couldn't use that weapons. But um, on the theoretical level, of course, um, it gives a very bad example for the non-proliferation regime for those states who are planning um, to pass through the nuclear disarmament process because Ukraine is a clear model of the state who passed to nuclear disarmament in exchange for the assurances that its sovereignty and its border will be intact, especially by those who had signed those assurances, in particular Russia. And uh, everything failed. I mean, this is the worst uh, example for the non-proliferation regime, that no matter what is promised to you and how it is promised to you, uh, the only thing which can guarantee your security is having nuclear weapons on your lands. 
And uh, in this regard, no matter how impractical we can, you know, how much we can speculate about the uh, example of Ukraine, the, there is the example, uh, and now we can see that Russia, uh, who is the biggest nuclear state in the world, actually is threatening everyone to use nuclear weapons if it interferes uh, in its war with Ukraine. So on one hand, we have the state who had got rid of nuclear weapons, even tactical ones, right? On the other hand, we have Russia who is using the threat of nuclear deterrence against that state. So this is the worst possible example for non-proliferation regime, giving uh, anyone who has ever thought about the possibility to acquire nuclear weapons one clear message. If you plan to acquire nuclear weapons, just do it. If you plan to, to pass through the process of nuclear disarmament, don't do it. Otherwise, you have a very clear possibility that somebody who would ever conquer you, you know, and uh, nobody interfere in this conflict. Because uh, in this regard, we have the example of uh, Serbia, genocide against Kosovo. We had the Kosovo War of 1999, uh, where Serbia was actually deprived of any possibilities to influence over Kosovo and uh, the further Kosovo independence. On the other hand, we have this not similar situation, but very looking like where, where nuclear Russia is trying to conquer non-nuclear Ukraine and nobody actually can interfere. So this is a very bad lesson for those who are planning to pass through nuclear disarmament and a very good lesson for those who are thinking about acquiring nuclear deterrence because it shows that nuclear deterrence makes sense because this is the only one which can provide you with a secure umbrella against um, invasion, against uh, practicing your power projection. Jessica, the agreement that um, disarmed um, Ukraine from nuclear weapons was the Budapest Agreement. And the guarantors were Russia, the US and the UK. Russia, we know, has violated it. Um, the US claimed that it didn't give security guarantees. It only gave security assurances to Ukraine, which is why it didn't have to come and protect Ukraine. And the UK, of course, went immediately after it. Um, Coming towards the end of this fascinating podcast, can I just ask you, why would other states accept the guarantee of the US, the UK, NATO, if that's what happened in the case of the Budapest Agreement? So I think, um, I mean, this is a this is a, a really hard question, and I, I agree with a lot of what Polina said about this as a as a lesson learned for potential other um, proliferating nations. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, we have seen the U.S. and U.K. and many allies in, in Europe and nations in Europe, while they're not putting boots on the ground to support Ukraine, certainly are providing, you know, now billions of dollars in military equipment and military aid to support uh, the Ukrainian government to ensure the sovereignty of their country. And, and having sat through, you know, probably um, 20 uh, ministerial meetings and, um, and heads of state meetings now, I think the, the support for Ukraine um, throughout the West is just incredibly high. And I think that allies and nations are doing more than we could have ever imagined six months ago to support the Ukrainian government and ensure that they are successful vis-a-vis um, -vis Russia in, in defending their territory. 
But I do think that the reluctance to put, you know, U.S. or NATO soldiers on the ground um, in Ukraine to help fight that war on the ground um, is is a lot to do with the threats that Russia has levied against against NATO um, and against the West and the nuclear threats in particular. You know, they um, conducted a strategic nuclear exercise just days um, before invading Ukraine. They um, were very clear uh, in their messaging about the uh, potential that they to escalate to that they would escalate to the nuclear threshold if if NATO became directly involved and and so I think from from our perspective um, to the extent that we can provide as much aid and support to the Ukrainian people both lethal and non lethal assistance um, through national mechanisms and means. Uh, through our coordinated efforts, um, both uh, both led by the U.S. Um, and in the EU and and other formats, I think that that is uh, directly designed to not give Russia an excuse to further escalate um, into a wider war or uh, escalate across the nuclear threshold. Thinking here from NATO is that because Russia is really um, using up a lot of its conventional warfighting capacities in this war with Ukraine that will actually make them much more reliant on nuclear threats and nuclear intimidation um, vis-a-vis NATO in in the coming in the coming weeks and coming years. And so we you know we don't want to provoke Russia uh, at the same time we do want to make sure that Ukraine, fights and wins this conflict against Russia. Ladies, I feel as though I've only just begun this conversation, but unfortunately we now have to bring it to an end. That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to our guests, Jessica Cox and Polina Sinovitz. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Please continue the discussion with us at Wise Brussels on Twitter. Facebook or LinkedIn. And if you haven't done it yet, subscribe to Wise Brussels Voices and listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast application. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel, together with my friend and colleague Florence Ferrando. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for more great conversations. Thank you.